Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. I'm about to get personal here, so listen up. I'm going to tell you a fun fact about me that you definitely didn't know. The lube that I use most consistently is Uber Lube. I really mean it. If you were here with me right now, I'd tell you to go over to my nightstand drawer and tell me what you see. That's right. You would see a bottle of Uber Lube. If you've never heard of Uber Lube, let me tell you about it. Uber Lube is a silky smooth silicone-based lube recommended by leading doctors, and its body-friendly ingredient list makes it widely used by people with sensitivities to lubricants. Another amazing thing about Uber Lube is that it doesn't leave a sticky residue like water-based lubes do. It lasts for a long time and doesn't stain clothing or bedding. I have three bottles of Uber Lube on my bedside table right now, ready when I need it. If you're someone who wants to feel more pleasure in the bedroom, use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Trust me, it's amazing. Let me tell you about one of my favorite pleasure product retailers out there, Lion's Den. If you haven't heard about Lion's Den before, I can't wait to tell you about them. Lion's Den opened its first retail facility in Columbus, Ohio in 1971. That's right, over 50 years ago. Since then, they've grown to more than 50 outlets throughout the US, building their reputation on high quality products, low prices, and a knowledgeable sales staff who can help you find the perfect toy. One of the many things I love about Lion's Den is that they advocate for a sex positive perspective on intimacy and sexual well being, and strive to break the stereotypes and stigma surrounding sex by providing comprehensive educational resources to empower everyone to enjoy life to the fullest. They are simply amazing. Lucky for you, Lion's Den is giving my listeners an exclusive discount of 15% off your purchase in store and online with code SEXED with DB at lionsden.com. What are you waiting for? Get your amazing Lion's Den toy now. If I were to tell you I was conducting a masturbation experiment with the magic wand, what would some of your hypotheses be? Well, I did do a masturbation experiment with the magic wand, so let me tell you what some of mine were. Number one, anxiety, tension, and stress will decrease during and after daily magic wand use. Number two, daily magic wand use will be associated with improved mood, confidence, and happiness when compared with no sexual activity. And number three, sleep length and sleep quality will improve during daily magic wand use when compared to no sexual activity. After running the numbers, two of those hypotheses were true, and one of them is false. Want to know which ones were true and which one was false? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash magic wand experiment to learn more about the experiment. Read some of my daily journals and watch some of my daily vlogs and find the results of these hypotheses and a few others and so much more. I'm Gwenna Lakeland, but you probably know me as Mama Cusses on TikTok and Instagram. And I'm Tori Phantom, also known as Tori Phantom on TikTok and Instagram. And we want to tell you about our brand new podcast, Childproof, from Betches Media. Parenting is hard, but it's even harder when you feel alone. That's why we created Childproof, a parenting chat show for when you're craving adult conversation and are surrounded by tiny humans. And on Childproof, we'll try to figure out the do's, don'ts, and what ifs of modern parenthood. We have been friends for years, so we want to use this show as an opportunity 
opportunity to compare notes, share stories, and grow as parents at the same time. So tune in every Wednesday as we share our experiences through a mix of one-on-one conversations, guest appearances, and input from you our listeners. That's right. You, you personally, where you are right now, you can be a listener. Subscribe right now wherever you're listening. That's Childproof from Betches Media. Hello, hello, everybody. I hope everyone is doing phenomenally. I just played some pickleball and took a nice uh, shower and I'm feeling nice and relaxed. So I hope everyone has post pickleball energy as well. Uh, What are we talking about today? Today, we have the unbelievably awesome Tigress Osborne on. And in this episode, we talk about the difference between body positivity and fat liberation. And we also talk about the organization that Tigress is executive director of, which is the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, aka NAFA, as well as the incredible legislative efforts that they're involved in to make workplaces specifically more equitable for fat people. We also talk about fat people in the media and representation, and this episode is chock full of really, really great pieces and uh, stories from Tigris. And just a little old reminder for you, if you go to sexedwithdb.com slash discounts, you'll see discounts on all my faves. So that's sexedwithdb.com slash discounts from all of our amazing sponsors of the show. And that's the little old reminder that I have. Without further ado, here I am with Tigris. Hello, Tigress. How's it going today? It's going good. How are you? I'm great. I am stoked to get to chat with you today. I know we've been going back and forth and trying to find a a time through email, and I'm so lucky to be here with you talking uh, for this episode. And so I wonder if you can just share uh, a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to the crowd And tell us about the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, a.k.a. NAFA. Is that how you say that? Yeah, we do say NAFA. It's always fun for me when I'm talking to like a journalist who doesn't know us and they and they say, tell me about the NAAFA. Um, (laughs) But we do um, we do say NAFA. And I have been involved with NAFA since uh, 2012. Uh, Before I became involved with NAFA, I ran a plus size nightclub event in Oakland, California called Full Figure Friday. And it was, um, it was like um, uh, a black centered hip hop party in Oakland. Everyone welcome, you know, all sizes, all identities, um, all sexualities, all of that stuff. But, you know, but centered around like, as a black woman, I had been going to some of the other BBW parties, uh, big, beautiful women parties and feeling not that welcomed as a black woman in those spaces. And so I really targeted um, black women and the folks who love us in, in creating my club space, but hopefully achieved a space that was welcoming for everyone. And through that, we did a lot of fashion stuff. And NAFA invited me to produce um, a fashion show at one of their conferences. So that's how I first got involved. I had first heard of NAFA when I was a college student. There was someone who worked on my campus who was very, very involved um, in in NAFA in Boston back in the early 90s. And I'd first heard about it from her, but it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I got involved by way of that fashion show. Um, And so a couple years later, um, it was awesome. It was a really great way to meet folks at NAFA. And um, there were a couple of uh, really active NAFA folks who ended up being my fellow board members later, but Peggy and Darlene Howell, who I had met at some other like conventions or um, 
uh, I don't know if your listeners will know what a BBW bash is, but it's just like, it's like a party convention um, for, um, you know, centered around bigger women and folks who are attracted to or love or have romantic sexual interest in bigger folks. Um, and also for people to just meet each other and, you know, be in community with each other. And okay, I'd, yeah. And hang, yeah. And so it can be, bashes can be a lot of things to a lot of people. But for me, they were places to make friends and wear costumes. There were a lot of theme nights and I love costumes. And so anyway, I'd met some of the NAFA ladies at meet and greets at various events like that. But getting to be involved in the fashion show and then being invited to join the board, you know, felt like a big deal to me. I knew NAFA as this like historic civil rights organization for fat people. And so, um, I just, um, it felt really special to me to be able to get involved. And so I've been involved since then. Um, I became the community outreach director and then the board chair and I'm now the executive director of the organization. Hell yeah. Wow. A lot of, yeah, yeah, a lot of time spent at the org and like clearly, you know, the mission super well. And yeah, could you share a little bit about what, what NAFA does and kind of like the mission, the goals, like who you all work with, what, what your aim is? Totally. So um, NAFA was founded in 1969, um, and it started with um, a a mixed group of of fat and thin people, um, fat folks and their partners, friends, small group. Um, uh, The official founder is Bill Fabry, whose brainchild it sort of was, but he was also helped in founding the organization by an author named Lou Lauderback, who's the person who wrote what is credited as the first, like, fat power book um and uh and so the, the they started in in new york and then eventually established tra- chapters across the country we don't have a chapter model anymore we just have a governing board and then we support other local activists and local organizations um you know through their own organizations not through chapters of nafa but we do our mission is to change perceptions of fat and eliminate size discrimination through education advocacy and support that's our official mission um we also have a sort of um modern addendum to the uh, mission which is to brazenly celebrate fat joy um and we, uh, which is part of changing perceptions of fat, actually, you know, the idea that everyone fat is, you know, miserable, miserably trapped in a fat body is preposterous. Like, mm. um, you know, a lot of people are, are miserable in their fat bodies, but it's often not the fat. It's often the systemic injustice that they are facing because of the fat. So, mm. um, so anyway, we, we work on, um, we do a lot of things virtually these days. We sort of had a rebuild after our 50th anniversary co- conference. Um, you know, we'd gotten to be a smaller organization um, and had not done a great job of reaching folks generationally as the organization's, you know, core membership got older. And so <clears throat> when I came onto the board at 40, people were talking about me as like one of the younger people in the organization. And I was like, mm. y'all, y'all know. I'm not young to young people, right? (laughs) Um, And so (laughs) I'm really excited to be able to say that our our current working, so we're governed by a working board. Um, Everybody on the board is a volunteer and I was a volunteer until a few months ago when I was named executive director. This is our first paid staff position in many years. Um, So we've been in a rebuild mode um, to strengthen infrastructure as an organization, but also to become much more intersectional than NAFA historically was. Um, 
you know, NAFA reached a lot of, you know, thousands and thousands of people over the years, um, but was often experienced as a much more welcoming place um, for straight white folks than for folks with other identities. Um, And we really wanted to change that. I, for folks who are listening and not seeing me on video, um, I am a a Black woman of, of mixed race of mixed race blackness, but um, very strongly black identified. And I, um, and I am, you know, I am straight, but surrounded by queer beloveds. And I didn't, I couldn't be part of an organization where black and brown folks and queer folks felt like, is this really for me? Or is this only for me if I leave my other identities at the door? And um, certainly there were folks of various identities who had good experiences in NAFA over the years. Um, But we needed that to be more consistently true. We needed that not to be like isolated experiences, but to have people really feel like they were part of the collective. Um, And so so we've focused a lot on intersectionality in the last few years. Um, We've also focused a lot on virtual programming, partly because of the pandemic, but also partly because we learned as, as, as the world started opening back up and places that had been doing virtual stuff started abandoning virtual stuff. Um, we learned just how much it meant to people who, um, for a wide variety of reasons, ranging from, you know, economic ability to disability, um, were finding it so much easier to feel a sense of connection through virtual events to, to not be so isolated. And so we didn't want to be one of the organizations that have abandoned all of our virtual programming because some people could meet in person again. So we're still doing a lot of virtual programming. In fact, last year we did about 50 virtual events of, you know, some of them are social, some of them are educational, you know, we have an excellent crew of volunteers and, you know, and they range from like the 10 minute Instagram live to the, you know, night, you know, 60 to 90 minute educational workshop or interactive writing workshop. We have a whole crew of volunteers that help us produce virtual events, poetry workshops, virtual brunches. We had a drag story hour, like all kinds of different things. Um, and this year we'll start doing a little bit more in-person stuff, especially as it relates to supporting legislation, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Um, but but we're, we're not going to abandon those virtual events. Might not be 50 every year once we're also doing right. in-person things, but, um, but it will still be a ro- robust virtual event programming. And so so through that shifted focus and then through offering all that virtual stuff, we were just able to reach a lot of different people, you know, a much more, uh, a, a bigger variety of people. And as people started reacting to that, then different people were interested in being part of leadership. So our board now has an age range of 24 to 69. Um, we are over 50% people of color. Uh, we are over 50% people who are LGBTQIA identified and in lots more of those letters than it used to just be sort of like the, um, the fat activist dykes, um, Hmm. and maybe one gay man, but now it's like, um, you know, now we have a much more broader representation of the whole sort of queer rainbow and, um, and folks with like lots of different kinds of lived experience with disability and chronic illness. And so we just, um, we have better representation um, on our board, a broader representation on our board, and that helps shape everything that we do to hopefully make us, you know, a more um, relevant and exciting organization for for fat people to want to be in, involved with. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for that background. Uh, I definitely would love to attend some of these events. I'm super curious to 
to see, um, yeah, just like the community that you've built, which is really awesome. And I'm wondering if you could just briefly share like your path into this work. Like, how did you become passionate about this? What, like, what was your experience like, I guess, before you joined NAFA? Like what, what kind of made you interested in, in being in this work? So I was a fat teenager. Um, I was actually a pretty slim kid. Like I had those, when I was a kid, kids sizes, this is so sounds so weird to people who are not of my vintage, but like when I was a kid, kids sizing, it was like, you would be like a size eight, but then there was like a slim eight, a regular eight and a husky eight. Um, mm. And I was actually a slim as a kid and then puberty hit and things started changing. And I, um, you know, and I have uh, a family history on, on, both of my biological sides and my sort of step family side of like lots of big folks. So I had lots of big folks as role models and, but also as um, what were presented to me as a kid as cautionary tales. And so I was always very aware of like body size and what, you know, what it meant to be, you know, what my fat aunts were going through. And I should just say like, I don't, I don't know how often y'all talk about this on your podcast, but at NAFA we use the word fat um, neutrally. Sometimes we use it in a celebratory way, uh, but we use it neutrally. And I just always like to say to audiences, like, I know it's a word that carries a lot of trauma for a lot of folks. And I'm going to say it a lot because of the way I've embraced it and because we have sort of a political stance around using it in that neutral way. But if you're listening to this and it's, it's hitting you hard to hear the the F word, um, I just hope that you um, that you take care of yourself, that you consider when and whether you can start to use it the way we use it at NAFA, the way I use it in my personal life, but that as you are doing that, that you take care of yourself if it's a word that has a lot of trauma for you. And it, it had some trauma for me. Um, you know, I, I became bigger than most, many of, b- bigger than many of my classmates when I, once I hit puberty. Um, and I was, there were always kids that were bigger than me. So I was always aware of the sort of like, how you get how like I could not have said this this way at 12 right but how like proximity to privilege changes the way that people treat you or whether how you're othered um Mm. and so anyway so I was thinking about this stuff since I was like 12 and I remember writing a letter to I had all the subscriptions to all the teen magazines because in my family people just thought it was good that I liked to read and it was anything that was going to help me read and there was no critical lens on like what are these magazines teaching my daughter about you know about her about boys about her body about whatever and for me as a 12 year old I was just thinking they were teaching me the right way to be you know a popular girl or to you know what I was supposed to be like as a, a growing young woman or whatever and you know as an adult I'm like oh my god don't let my niece be exposed to any of this um anyway I I remember um trying to write an article that I was going to send off to this teen magazine about the fat boys the rap group and just like the 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 rap the like how how they were like proof that fat people can be cool too or fat people can be do you know can can do things too i was always thinking about it um i'm i met carrie hemingway the nafa member who first introduced me to nafa at a workshop during a diversity day on my first year of college and um she had me thinking a lot about using the word fat neutrally and about what it meant to be fat 
what it actually meant to me to be fat versus what I thought it meant to other people to be fat. And I had, you know, friends that I could shop with at the plus size store at the mall. And there was a plus size store at the mall, which was a huge, big deal. Um, So I was like, kind of always thinking about this stuff. But I was mostly just thinking about it in my own personal life. And I was definitely still feeling a lot of pressure to lose weight, a lot of pressure to diet. You know, I didn't, it's weird for me to say, like, I tried all the diets, because most of them, I didn't try. I just like, like I bought the South Beach book, but I never really tried to do that, you know. Um, but I lost a bunch of weight in my early 20s because of a period of severe depression. And instead of like um, being diagnosed with clinical depression, as I later was, <laughs> um, and instead of people around me treating me like I was going through a mental health crisis and needed support, what people were instead doing was congratulating me for weight loss. Mm. And so I dropped a bunch of weight really fast because I was not eating. Um, and I probably should have given that a content warning as well. Sorry, folks. Um, but I... I it was the first time in my life I saw that sort of like really really dramatic way that people cared more about the fact that I was getting thinner than they cared about the fact that I had black circles under my eyes because I was crying 4 hours a day. And I mm. think that I think that planted one of the seeds of revolution in me. Like I was really I was angry about that. I didn't feel like yay I won by being thinner. I felt like really really mad that um that people cared more about that, that the, that the question was not, are you okay? The question was, how are you doing it? Um, Mm -hmm. and I, and so I think that's where it first got me. Um, by the time I started my nightclub event in my thirties, I was doing diversity work at a high school by day. So I was talking about race and class and gender all the time. And then I started doing my nightclub event because I was sort of a late bloomer to going out to clubs and dancing and stuff like that. I'd been more of a homebody in my 20s. And um, I wanted to go to a space where I felt like um, nobody was going to be looking at me sideways for being the fat girl on the dance floor or nobody was going to be, you know, I was going to I was going to know that there were people there who were attracted to me and my body type. And so I started exploring in, in the Bay Area where I was living at the time. Um there were um, at that time two plus size nightclub events, two BBW clubs. Um, and I started going to those and then I started my own. But when I started my own, I wanted it to be more focused on women of color. Um, and I also wanted to have a little bit more of that, a, a little more body politic. Because like I'm a feminist and I'm teaching women's studies by day. <laughs> I didn't mm-hmm. want it to just be like, where is the place where men go to look at big booties? But also like, and that's fine. Like look at the big booties and enjoy that, whatever, you know, respectfully. But like, I, um, I also wanted to think about like, well then what is this, what is, what are the people who come to my club going to know about other stuff the rest of the week? Like I want to throw the hottest party on Friday nights for big girls in the Bay, but I also wanted to think about things like supporting NAFA um, or, you know, fundraising for other charities or things like that during the week. Right. So that's like yeah. kind of the path, right? That's kind of the path. It's like, I went from being, you know, the, the teenager who developed a little earlier than a lot of other folks. And like, I was very, you know, when you're a kid, they're still doing things like publicly weighing you at school. And so I was still very aware oh my God, yeah. that my number was higher than everyone else. 
um, my ninth grade, I, I've told this story to people before. And so like, it sounds so ridiculous, but like my ninth grade biology teacher had us chart our weight on like an overhead projector, like on like in front of the whole class. Oh my God. And I remember like, I was not a kid who was very, I, I was, I was very, um, guilty about lying. So I, I, I wanted to lie though, because I didn't want everybody to know my real weight, but I felt really guilty about lying. So I had a lot of angst about it. And then I also felt like if I lie too much, it's just going to be laughable because everybody's going to know that I don't weigh the same as this person sitting next to me or whatever. So I was like, just like, I was like a little scientist trying to calculate the perfect lie of my weight. So I didn't have to reveal my real weight. And, and then I put it up there and I was, everybody else had also lied. So I was like, also that's still the biggest, like the heaviest kid in the class other than the linebacker. Um, and so I just like, there are these like standout moments of like, I can laugh about that now, but as a teenager, I was not laughing about that, you know? That's traumatizing. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thanks for, for sharing all that. I do think, yeah, like being like just having conversations in this work with other people who have had similar experiences. And when like, it's really about like power, right? Like taking back your power and your body and mm-hmm. like whatever you can do to feel like best in your body. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's really wonderful that you're able to kind of like tell your story and share that um, even though it's vulnerable and even if it's challenging at, at times um, in order for other people to feel like, hey, I, I experienced that too or I, I know what that yeah. feels like. It makes people feel less alone. Um, well, and we have, and- I think I also have some, um, some sort of cultural touch points in common with a lot of people of my age group. I'm 49 because I was in eighth grade when Oprah went through her first major public weight loss. And I was a, a child and teenager when Richard Simmons was at the height of his like, you know, pop culture, um, icon kind of status, um, which is all built around, you know, dieting. And I love to tell people who've never heard about them, who've never heard of her about Susan Powder. Do you know who Susan Powder is? No. So, okay. So Susan Powder was this infomercial diva. She had a whole like huge diet industry. Like she sold exercise videos and weight loss books. And she had a studio. I think she was in Texas, like an exercise studio. And people would like make the pilgrimage to her exercise studio to work out with her. But this was at the height of television infomercials when they, you know, come on and, and just like spend half an hour selling your product. And her thing was called stop the insanity. And her whole thing was like, I am Uh, you know, I'm a feminist. And as a feminist, I get to have these, you know, five inch red nails and my platinum blonde hair and my red lipstick and my sexy clothes. I'm a sexy feminist. And damn it, I just want to help you get free by losing weight so you can be a sexy feminist too. And, and so, so her whole thing was diet culture is insanity. And so it was stop the insanity. And she'd come and she'd go, stop the insanity. And then she would sell you her diet products, which were, you know, which were a, you know, quote unquote lifestyle change, not a diet products. Right. And so it was, you know, but like I had her book on tape, like I would just walk around town listening to her book on tape on my walk, man, that's really dating myself. But um, because it seemed like one of the things I realized as an adult is that some of the things that um, really spoke to me via diet culture as a teenager and a young, young adult the reason they were speaking to me is because they were people who were acknowledging 
the the stigma and the prejudice and sometimes the blatant discrimination that fat people faced. So like in Oprah's Make the Connection book, she talks about what it felt like to be a fat woman. Nobody else was talking about that. Nobody else was, you know, and like she's talking about it with with the ultimate, well, I didn't know who else was talking about that. There were books like Shadow on a Tightrope that I wasn't exposed to until later in my life where fat women were writing about the oppression they face in the culture. But when I was 19, I did not know about the Fat Liberation Manifesto declaring that fat people have the same rights as everybody else, right? So mm-hmm. what I knew was be invisible as a fat person until you are on a weight loss journey. That's what I knew. Unless you are willing to be the butt of the joke, you know, or you are, um, you know, or maybe if you are one of a handful of uh, amazing um, Black female and femme celebrities, but who also are sometimes being cast in mammy type kind of roles for people, right? So like, those were those were the options, right? and I didn't know there were other options for just like sort of you know I, I mean I had some sense through my own aunts on one side of my family that you could be like sexy and fat, you could be sassy and fat, but you, they were still always talking about losing weight, um, and mm-hmm. so I just didn't have the exposure to people talking about how much it hurt to be fat except through the sort of introductory parts of these diet books where people talked about how hard it was to be fat and then they talked about losing weight and inevitably if, like, right it's like ine- inevitably kind of how it moves too yeah and that's what they were that's what they were trying to sell they're talking about the hard parts of being fat to think about how you change yourself and ultimately usually how you buy their products to change yourself and somewhere it clicked for me that and I think through some of that early exposure to NAFA and then through books like Mar- Marilyn Wan's Fat So was really instrumental to me. I remember the first time I saw it on the shelf in Barnes & Noble in Richmond, California, where I was living. And it has this little dancing, curvy fat woman on the cover. It's this brightly colored book. It's fat exclamation point, so question mark. And it has this, you know, she's sort of got like this vintage hairstyle. So, and there's actually like, you can flip through the book and it, and she dances. It's like one of those, you know, where you oh, flip amazing. the thing and the, the little character moves. Um, but I, I remember like, that's how, how much that book meant to me. Just like, I clearly remember the first time I saw it because it was so rare to see a fat body in a positive light. And around that same Around that same time, I read um, Losing It by Laura Fraser, which is like an investigation into diet culture and weight loss. Uh, and it, you know, it talks about weight loss surgeries and it talks about Richard Simmons. And I think there's probably, I think there was a Susan Powder chapter too, but like it talks about these things from a like investigative journalist critical kind of perspective. Like, what if we mm-hmm. didn't approach it the way we're approaching it? Right. And that's where I started to shift, was in that sort of like mid mid 20s range. I was in this um, Yahoo group that was for fat black women who were trying to lose weight. And it was called like thick and healthy sisters or something like that. And, um, and I began to say, what if I just want to do these things to feel better, whether I lose weight or not, I had not yet been exposed to health at every size as like an official framework, but I'd started to be exposed to this idea that like, what if instead of chasing the weight loss, you just chase the other pieces of it, the parts that make you feel good instead of the parts that make you feel like you're on this like hamster wheel of obsession about dieting. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I remember kind of being like, I remember kind of telling the group that like, this is what I think I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to not focus on the number on the scale. I'm just going to focus on the other aspects of this. Um, But I don't remember their reaction. I think, I think more of not being in that group anymore was just like the internet was changing and (laughs) I was doing something other than Yahoo groups. But, um, but I just, I remember like those moments all happening around the same time in the sort of like, Um, mid to late 90s that it would have been sort of right before things like tumblr took off with more like body positivity or like all the i have a lot of friends who talk about like the early days of live journal being places where they discovered people for me it was like um for me it was more in the books um and then it was later it was in you know myspace and facebook and things like that but the the internet piece um wasn't as prominent for me as it was for some of my contemporaries but those two books made a huge difference for me abortion access is changing and at the same time that safe modern telehealth options emerge politicians are passing harmful bans to block access and win votes impacting marginalized and low-income communities the most but there is hope in the form of five pills. Plan C is a national nonprofit campaign on abortion pills, a safe and effective modern method used up to 12 weeks. At plancpills.org, you will find a 50-state guide to pills, which includes FAQs, in-depth resources, and free hotlines to understand legal risk and get medical support. Plan C's mission is to spread the word about this medically safe modern method and all the different routes of access, including activists, telehealth providers, and getting pills in advance. Because access to safe abortion care should not depend on your zip code. Visit plancpills.org to learn more and join the movement. Ever since getting engaged to my wonderful fiance, I've been thinking about ways to keep things fun and novel between us, but I, of course, want it to feel organic. I want to be able to feel sexy and comfortable in my body while trying something new. Thanks to Lion's Den, a new adventure I've been exploring is the world of lingerie. I never really was a big lingerie girl myself, but once I started trying on lingerie that accentuated my curves, felt super soft to the touch, and made me look in the mirror and felt wildly confident in my skin, that changed pretty quickly. Plus, when I searched for what I might like on Lion's Den's website, I saw models that actually looked like me. They were curvy and thick and voluptuous, and it made all the difference to see models that have my body type. Want to join me in my new lingerie chapter? Right now, you can use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off your purchase in-store and online at lionsden.com. Follow them on social media at Lion's Den Adult on IG and TikTok for exclusive offers, deals, and giveaways. Let's talk about a lube I absolutely love, Uberlube. Uberlube makes sex better for everyone by reducing friction and increasing pleasure. Whether you're using it for solo sex, sex with a partner, or both, Uberlube has a long-lasting performance that lets skin feel skin. It has simple body and condom-friendly ingredients, is scent and color-free, dissipates when no longer needed so there's no sticky residue, and is recommended by leading doctors. Use code SEXEDWITHDB for 15% off at uberlube.com. Yeah, and I really like this piece that you hit on around us not talking about like how 
eating vegetables like makes your brain feel good and how like going on a walk makes you happier. Like there isn't really now I think there is more than ever before that emphasis, I think with like the body positive movement and the fat acceptance movement. But I don't think that has been the norm. I think it has always been tied to the number on the scale. Um, And so the more and more that we can really separate those things and really appreciate, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mental health and like the way in which we feel in our bodies and our confidence and like how, you know, exercising leads to endorphins, which can like, like decrease depression. (laughs) Like there are like all of these things that are now just now I feel like starting um, to be separated from, from the number on the scale. And yeah, in the, on this podcast, you know, we've, we've talked about fat phobia and body acceptance, but I often think that these two topics get used interchangeably, right? While like the messages and the goals are actually very different. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the framework that you all use at NAFA and kind of the differences between, between those two. So NAFA, I mean, you know, what's in our name, which we're, we're, we're not entertaining the possibility of changing the historical name of the organization, but the, the, in the name is the word, the the term acceptance, right? Fat acceptance. Um, And when we think about fat acceptance, what we're really thinking about is the sort of tolerance level, right? Just, we're here, just accept that and stop trying to change it, right? Just let it, let it be. Um, That's a little bit different than celebration or liberation, which have more of a goal of like, not just do you, not just do you like leave me alone, but do you actually celebrate my existence and support me in having my freedom? And so we use a fat liberation framework now, you know, when the, so I, for me, the fat liberation terminology really goes to the fat liberation manifesto, which was um, created by a group called the fat underground in the early 1970s. And those are a group of women who were like radical feminist women who started with a chapter of NAFA in LA actually, and then found that some NAFA support, some NAFA leadership supported them being radical, but a lot of NAFA leadership didn't, you know, NAFA in those early days was a lot more what, um, like, uh, we would say today, respectability politics, right? Like, we're going to prove that fat people are as acceptable as other people. Whereas today, I think we at NAFA, and especially other folks in the movement who are more radical than we are as an organization, have much more of a, like, middle fingers up approach of, like, right. we're going to be accept- we're gonna be acceptable in the ways that we need to be to be able to navigate the systems that govern our lives. And also... Um, we're not as invested in whether you like us or not. We're invested in whether you treat us fairly or not. Mm-hmm. And so you like, you don't like, I don't, if you think I'm ugly because I'm fat, if you think I'm unhealthy because I'm fat, like I hope I can, you know, I or somebody with more patience can change your mind about those things or that we through our programming that we work hard to put out that is available to everyone can help, you know, change mindsets about that. Like I said, our mission is to change perceptions of fat. But also, um, the end size discrimination part is important to me and important to us as an organization. And I don't care if you think I'm ugly. You still need to pay me fairly at my job, right? It doesn't, if it matters to me, 
if you think I'm unhealthy, not because your opinion matters, but because your opinion helps to dictate how the system works that prevents me from access to the healthcare I need, or that only mm-hmm. treats me for one healthcare concern, which is their perceived, you know, like whatever they perceive because of my fat body, which might not have anything to do with the earache that I came to this office for or whatever. Right. And so fat liberation is much more, um, interested in not just our individual freedom, but our collective freedom and also how the systems that govern our lives impact that individual and collective freedom. So body positivity can be more like, do you feel good about your body? Are you able to say, I feel good today? And sometimes, especially in this sort of later stage of body positivity, that has morphed into including some things that are actually, you know, some things that are really anti-fat. <laughs> like, um, you know, if it makes me feel better to not look as fat by, you know, wearing shapewear or do, going on a diet or taking Ozempic or whatever, then that's all part of body positivity because it makes me individually feel more positive about myself. Um, that is part of body autonomy. You have the right to do all of those things. It's your body. You make the choices you want to make for your body. That's a principle of fat liberation, that you get to make your choices for your body. But um, autonomy also does not dismiss you from accountability. So if the choices that you are making have a community impact or a collective impact, or the things that you're saying about your choices have community or collective impact in terms of sort of reinforcing horrifying stereotypes about fat people or, you know, codifying beliefs that other people have about fat people you know, that you're just using your individual anecdotal experience and that's not necessarily a universal experience. Like, it's all complicated. Um, but that's the thing is like, fat liberation is going to be complicated because we're interested in community care. And that means balancing a bunch of different opinions and different needs and different um, uh, accommodations to make the community, you know, equitable to people and like body positivity as a body positivity started out as that it started out as sort of synonymous with with uh, at a minimum acceptance and at a maximum liberation um but as it got more and more co-opted and more and more diluted it got further and further away i mean the first people using the term body positivity were people like fat activists um and uh, and people in other social justice spaces or other, you know, marginalized identity spaces. When we talk about body positivity today, we are usually talking about the the movement that kind of grew out of Tumblr and Instagram in the early 2000s. That's not actually when the term body positivity first started being used. It was first used by some of the people who founded Health at Every Size. Um, And so it's been, you know, being used since the 90s. I always tell people that um, Deb Burgard, who is like a really brilliant um, uh, community advocate and therapist who specializes in working with people around body stuff, body uh, eating disorders and other body stuff, has owned the website bodypositivity.com since like the beginning of the internet. So like this term didn't just pop up in 2005 when people were hashtagging it on Instagram. But when we talk about it today, we are kind of talking about that like early 2000s era. And that a lot of that early work was done by you know, Black women and femmes, queer folks, disabled folks, 
people from the communities of, you know, amputees and folks with scars, like people who were outside of mainstream beauty standards and far outside of mainstream beauty standards. And as the term got more and more popular, um, you know, it sort of tipped the balance more towards people who are barely outside mainstream beauty standards or who are manufacturing ways that they are outside beauty mainstream, like they really still are inside mainstream beauty standards, um, but they feel fat, <laughs> they feel unattractive. And so they're manufacturing ways to um, to showcase that so that they can be influencers around these issues. And so you know, body positivity has changed a lot. Um, but, and fat, you know, I think fat liberation has changed a lot too. It's, it was foundational, like in the fat, fat liberation manifesto, the fat underground talks about being in solidarity with other social justice movements. And the most radical fat activists were always trying to do that. But mainstream fat activists, including folks at NAFA, were not always good at that. Sometimes mm. it was the anti-fatness in those other movements. Sometimes it was the unrecognized or unadmitted um, <laughs> uh, you know, racism or homophobia or whatever in our movement. And sometimes it was um, a, a well-intentioned sort of like, well, we should focus on the thing we're expert on and we're expert on being fat. So we should let, we should focus on that, stay in our lane and let other people do racism and let other people do sexism. So like, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it wasn't historically as intersectional as it is now, um, especially at NAFA. But, but the long and the short of it is still that, that but that meant it wasn't as intersectional and you know now we are, are working harder on that but it's like body positivity has gone the opposite way you know like body positivity started as being all about folks who were marginalized and now so much more of the focus is on folks who have it's a everybody. lot of proximity it's everybody it's everybody and it's anything that makes you feel good in your body so right. if that thing is something that contributes to the oppression of other people because you're legitimizing standards that other people are oppressed by, that's okay because it makes you feel good. So you get to still say you're body positive. Right. Right. That's yeah. the biggest I critique. Really, right? Totally. No, I really, I think all of this is super well said. And I think the piece around the differences between bodily autonomy and body positivity and fat liberation. Like these are all things that are kind of used interchangeably sometimes and they're just not. And I like the piece that you said mm -hmm. around holding yourself accountable if what you're doing, regardless of whether or not it makes you feel better, if it is influencing and kind of solidifying and codifying these things that are making other people feel worse, then like that, that's not necessarily – a uh, a positive notch in your belt it's more it's more of the same right well and is there a way to engage in so in an oppressive capitalist system <laughs> is there a way to engage in things that make you more acceptable to the system without being oppressive to other people in some way or another that is super complicated um mm -hmm. <clears throat> And if you're not going to just like reject the whole thing, can you, can you reject only parts of it and still have that be like a harm reduction model? Or are mm -hmm. you just still responsible for the harm that you cause? Right. And ultimately, um, you know, body autonomy, 
what's challenging about body autonomy from a for for me from a fat liberation perspective is that even if i say to you if you want to lose weight that's your body and i want you to do what you need to do in your body part of it actually being genuine autonomy is you being able to make those choices freely but you're not Mm -hmm. making the choices freely you're making the choices through coercion but through social coercion and through systemic coercion. If you ha- if you are trying to lose weight because you need a surgery and you can't get that surgery until you're under a certain BMI, that's not actually autonomy. That's your choice yeah. to make, right? Whether you're going to, okay, I'm not going to have the surgery or I'm going to do these things that I, you know, in, in protest, but I'm going to do them. Or I'm just going to buy into this and do these things because that's what the medical establishment told me. None of those are autonomy. Because you're not getting to make the choice in a in a system where you would be treated equally and fairly either way. Right. Right. If you yeah. know that fat people make less money on their jobs, if you know that for all of the, you know, for all of the really great TikTokers out there reminding us that they are dating whoever they want to, there are still issues related to dating and body size. If you know that, um, you know, whether you're seen as a good parent might be affected in your divorce case and your child custody hearing. And if you lost weight, you'd be seen as a better parent because you'd be seen as a better role model. Like if you know all those things, um, you're not making a free choice. That's not actually autonomy. You're being coerced into making the choice, forced into making the choice. You're not making an informed consent choice about dieting if the research about dieting is all done through a weight-biased lens because that's you're not really informed, right? If you have, if there's no weight-neutral research available um, about medical stuff, then everything we believe about medical stuff, the choices that we are making are they're not in they're not informed consent choices and so that's where it gets really difficult about body autonomy is like is that even autonomous and how autonomous can you be within a system that is set up through anti-fatness right absolutely no you're yeah you're i'm really learning a lot from you and appreciate everything that you're you're sharing here and i'm sure many people listening are learning a ton too uh i wonder if you could briefly talk through uh, some of the projects and advocacy efforts that NAFA is involved in, like some of the legislative yeah. efforts that you briefly mentioned earlier. Like, tell me what you're working on. Last year, we co-founded the Campaign for Size Freedom with our colleagues at FLAIR, which is the Fat Legal Advocacy Rights and Education Project. Um, we have these mouthful names. Like, I guess we, we were all like, we're we're big and we're going to be even bigger in our names. Um, <laughs> like, sometimes it was, we were just like, F-A-T or something like that. But um, but anyway, so we, you know, we can't we co-founded the campaign for size freedom. And the purpose of that campaign is to get people to better understand the landscape around legislation and fat rights um, or protections um, through legislation for fat people against discrimination, and then to support local work in getting legislation passed. So um you know, last year we worked with um, Council Member Shauna Breu and District Leader Lydia Green in New York City and with the Retail Workers Union and the Retail Action Project in New York City to help pass legislation to outlaw size discrimination there. So um, in New York City, as of November 22nd of last year, um, it is illegal to discriminate based on someone's height or weight in employment, housing, or public accommodation. Um, wow. So that's 
that's huge, right? And New York City mm-hmm. is like the global city. So it's an excellent example. Uh, it's an excellent example to the rest of the country and the rest of the world in terms of doing more to protect fat rights. Um, we would love to see even more comprehensive legislation in other places than in New York City so that it is just written into whatever civil rights laws already exist that height and weight are also protected classes. Um, and then the, and then the government treats it seriously in terms of enforcing that, right? That's what we yeah. want. Um, there are several states that have legislation pending, and folks can learn more about this on our website, naafa.org, and the legislation stuff is under the Size Freedom tab. We have lots of other learning resources um, under our learning tab, and then, of course, under events, you can find all those virtual events that I was talking about. You can find the upcoming ones. Um, we don't have much of our uh, this, this New Year's events up yet, but they'll be coming soon. But the legislative stuff is a huge part of our advocacy. We do other advocacy work that's not legislative, you know, um, I mean, for us, a huge part of advocacy, and again, that mission of changing perceptions of fat, is working with professionals in the media to change the way that they cover fat. So last year, mm. we did a research study with um, with Pamela Mejia, and um and she looked at the Le- Nexus Lexus results for news articles about fat. And um, so in the print media, not, not like People magazine so much, but as like news articles, where are we talking about fat and how are we talking about it? And there were only a handful of articles about fat rights. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of articles about um, weight and um, weight and health. And Mm -hmm. we want people to not only think of fat people as weight and health. Like we are doing all kinds of incredible things when, when, when folks get out of our way and let us do things or when we can push people out of our way to let us to, to do the things that we want to do. We are doing all kinds of incredible, incredible things in academia, in arts, in, you know, in, in science, in medicine, in like in technology, like all the same places everybody else is doing cool shit, we're doing cool shit too. When you stop discriminating against us and let us have the opportunities to do it, or again, when we overpower you and take the opportunities to do it. But um, so, you know, so there should be lots and lots of articles about us that are not about health and weight loss. And that is one of the things we try to focus on doing, um, you know, where we put together a report on that research and also included some things for journalists to think about in terms of how they cover fat people. Um, we worked a couple of years ago with Google to develop some plus size marketing guidelines for advertisers and marketers. Like if you're going to include fat people in your promotional stuff, how do you include us? Uh, how do you include us in ways that are th- our authentic representation of us, not just as the sort of before picture? Because like mm. we've been the before picture, but that's not what we are in our lives. We are the right now picture in our lives. <laughs> you know and so how do you show us as the right now picture um or the right right now people um so i think the media representation stuff is an important part of our advocacy work um one way we also did that last year is we worked with pinterest on you know they were developing some new ai and wanted to make sure that it was inclusive in terms of fashion um results when people were they learned from their users that when people are searching for fashion if they are plus size they have to put plus size in the search to be able to see people who look like them how can we change our algorithms how can we change our ai so that everybody sees plus size people 
It's not only plus size people who need to see me wearing the dopest dress you've ever seen. Everybody who likes a dope dress needs to see me wearing that dress, right? And right. so how do we, you know, so they worked on that in women's fashion last year and then they'll be rolling it out, um, uh, you know, rolling it out, I think sometime this year in, in men's fashion as well. Um, so yeah, just that kind of stuff around like how fat people are seen in the world. Um and Amazing. you know, yeah, it's been really exciting to get to work with some of those big partners. Um, we know we worked with Dove on launching the campaign for Size Freedom, um, which is a, a big deal. Like people are um people in body positivity can can, you know, see Dove as a leader or they can see Dove as a co-opter. And I think both are true to some extent, but this was definitely a great leadership moment for them. And um, and so like just getting to partner with these major organizations has been exciting, uh, but we also are mostly funded by people in our community. You know, we, um, Fat Liberation is incredibly underfunded compared to other social justice movements. And mm. most of our funding comes from donations of $25 or less from people in our community. That is where the majority of our funding comes right now. So we want to work on changing that so that our community is not um, the only one supporting us. Like our, our, you know, fat people and allies are not the only ones supporting us. We have that money and resource that other organizations have to do even bigger projects. But at the same time, we, we want to be accountable to those smaller <laughs> donors. Like we want to stay in community with those smaller donors. So um, so we're always interested in hearing from folks too about what other projects they'd like to see us doing. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all that. You guys are kicking ass. It's so great to get to chat with you and really hear about all the wonderful things that you're working on and doing. So thank you for being on. Uh, I wonder if you could share where people can find you and your work and also where people could uh, check check out NAFA. I know you mentioned the website, but maybe if you can share some some socials as well as if they yeah. want to donate and then just the website link one more time. Absolutely. On everything except Facebook, we are at NAFA official, N-A-A-F-A official. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash equality at every size, but you'll probably get us if you just type NAFA. There's one other NAFA in the world, um, but you can tell if you got to the fat people or not. Um, and then um, we're most active on Instagram in terms of socials, but we, um, you know, we, we post on Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Twitter slash X and uh, we're, we're working on getting uh, more of a TikTok presence this year. We, um, you know, our website is naafa.org. And then if you want to follow me personally, um, you know, my personal account on Instagram, which is again, where I'm most active in a public way is eye of the tigress. So it's the letter I and then O F and then my name tigress. And, um, and Genius I'm handle, happy by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I of the Tigress, like E-Y-E, when I went to try to claim that as a um, domain name, I think the person who had it was a fitness professional. And I just wonder, like, how often they get some, like, either fat trolling or, like, radical fatty stuff because somebody thinks it's me. So right. I've always wondered that, but I've, I've never reached out to ask them. But um <laughs> But anyway, yeah, that's so the so Instagram is the best place to find me on socials. That's where I'm most active. Again, would like to be establishing a bigger TikTok presence, but would also like to never be on TikTok ever in my entire life. So I'm, um, you know, balancing. There, yeah. Balance, yeah, it's, it's like 
it's the it's just I don't even know if I could say the wild west. It's like uncharted territory, and I don't. Right. Um, I'm happy to just watch other people's TikToks when people of my age post them on Facebook. Um, so <laughs> love it. <laughs> anyway, but that's that's where to find me. And then of course, you know, um, signing up for our NAFA newsletter will get you. If you like getting things to your inbox, you can on our website you can sign up for our newsletter, and then you'll get once a month from us updates from NAFA, and then also special alerts when there are big things happening like um like big legislative news or things like that we also have a petition on our website for the campaign for size freedom and the more signatures on that petition the more we can you know not just use it as a tool for communicating with legislators but also use it as a tool for getting the media to pay more attention to these stories about um legal discrimination and making that kind of discrimination illegal incredible well yeah listeners you heard it here first nafa.org go go check out that petition uh tigress thank you so much for being on thank you for having me our creator host and executive producer is me danielle bezalow our producer and communications lead is katherine cohen our producer and communications coordinator is sadie leegee Our marketing coordinator is Kate Fiala. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Thanks so much to our featured guests, partners, and listeners. Want to partner with us? Email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast and on TikTok at sexedwithdb. Want to rep us with some brand new Sex Ed with DB merch? Go to sexedwithdb.com slash merch to check it out now. See you next time. 